1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. I'm Morteza Haji your host from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking to Professor Matthias Claussen. Dr. Matthias Claussen is an Associate Professor of English at Aarhus University in Denmark. His research integrates horror study with the natural and social sciences, in particular, human behavioral biology and evolutionary and cognitive psychology. Today, he'll be talking to us about a wonderful book he wrote called Why Horror Seduces, Published by Oxford University Press in 2017. Matthias, welcome to New Books Network. Thanks very much. uh, uh well, I should perhaps say welcome back. You've been here before. Uh, just very briefly, it would be great if you could introduce yourself to our audience and tell us a little bit about your field of expertise, especially evolutionary psychology, which is a which is a new field in 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 literary studies as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I'm, um, I'm an Associate
0: Professor in uh, Literature and Media at Aarhus University in Denmark. I work in an English department. Um, and I'm also the director of uh, something called the Recreational Fear Lab, which is a research center at the same institution. And um, the Recreational Fear Lab is a place where we try to basically um, investigate when people enjoy playing with fear um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's related to the work I did in the book, Why Horror Seduces, because that book is an attempt to understand why people are attracted to horror movies and scary books and so on. Um, and I found it useful in my academic work to adopt an evolutionary perspective, because I think it has an incredible explanatory power It really you know Darwin's old idea of natural selection and the way in which organisms change over time in response to environmental changes. Um, it explains everything around us in in the in the biosphere, including humans and 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 human behavior, which would include culture. So even though even though there might be sort of a long and sometimes difficult to spot causal chain between you know mid. 19th century Darwinian evolutionary theory on the one hand, and uh, literature on the other hand, I do believe that that chain is there and that it makes sense to to try to kind of um, trace it.
1: Um, I, I myself did my PhD on Gothic novels of the 18th and 19th century England. When I had to do the background, uh, that's a review, uh, literature review on Gothic, I always I completely, she was just sick and tired of all those psychoanalytic approaches. And I was looking at it from an eco-critical perspective. There was almost nothing when I started. And there was a wealth of background, uh, research on gothic novels from a psych- uh, psychoanalytical perspective or psychological perspective. And mm. you have also mentioned in your book, you start the book, you, you talk about horror genre and you talk about some of the shortcomings of literature uh, or approaches, critical approaches to Gothic and horror in general, um, yeah. but what are those shortcomings of historical approaches? Yeah, so I included that chapter in the
0: book, which is sort of a review of uh, the most kind of common, critical ways to, to approach Gothic and, and horror. And as you say, Uh, they include psychoanalytical ones and historicist ones. And, um, the historicist approaches, um, tend to focus solely on the cultural context of, of the work in question. Um, and there is something to that. I mean, an author is always a product of their context. You know, they're always shaped by the norms and values and the beliefs of their cultural context. And, 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 that goes into the books as well. Um, but that's not all there is. I mean, humans aren't just cultural constructs. We're also biological creatures. Um, there is a term that I like, which is biocultural, which I think describes humans as, you know, biocultural creatures. We come into the world with, uh, genetic predispositions, uh, including predispositions to learn and to adopt. The norms and the values of our context. Um, so there is biology there and there is also culture and those two factors um, interact. And so I think if you were to approach um, horror literature or Gothic literature purely from a kind of contextual or historicist perspective, you're missing out
1: on on, on half of the picture, which is the
0: biological one.
1: And and uh, you you sort of touched upon one of the questions that I wanted to ask: bioculture approach. Mm-hmm. What is that bioculture approach? If you want to give us a definition for the for the layman, for the uninitiated,
0: right? Yeah. So so for anybody who's interested in in in, in this whole field of evolution and literature or literate Darwinism, uh, they'll probably be at first confused by by the many terms. That are used to basically describe the same thing. Um, so, biocultural is really synonymous with evolutionary. It's just a term that explicitly gets into focus the kind of dual nature of our species, of humans, as biological and cultural creatures. Um, so, biocultural means an approach that both focuses on biological foundations, you know, what is What are some of the psychological mechanisms that we're born with? For example, a fear mechanism that seems to be, you know, standard issue in, in, in human psychophysiological wiring around the globe. Um, but also how are we shaped by culture? How does our particular culture shapes how we, how does it shape how we behave, things we believe and so on. So for example, some people might be afraid of ghosts if they grow up in a culture where belief in ghosts is a basis. Well, being afraid of ghosts is the result of an interaction between biology and culture, um, an evolved innate fear system and a cultural belief in that particular kind of threat.
1: And um, so that's something that I hadn't really been aware of For So I've mainly looked at things from a culture perspective and I guess to to to, to approach things from a biological, biocultural perspective, you do need a lot of background in, in evolution psychology, and yeah. this is what I'm hoping to be able to, you know, uh, familiarize myself more through this interview. You, yeah. the harder, harder genre has been kind of re- researched to death in a way, but you brought a very new approach, which is this biocultural approach or evolutionary psychology, and you kind of make the case that it... Lends itself perfectly because horror fiction exploits our deep-seated psychological mechanisms and evolved mm-hmm. fear system. Could you talk about these concepts? What do you mean by our evolved fear system, and how does horror, horror uh, exploit um, that deep-seated psychological mechanism we have? Right. Yeah. Yeah, So horror, horror as a
0: genre, is. I think everybody can agree that it's effectively defined. You know, it's defined according to the intended audience response. You want a horror novel to be scary. You want a horror movie to frighten the audience. I mean, it's, it's a kind of a steal of quality. Um, I remember reading an interview with uh, Stephen King, who is my favorite author. And he said that if you learned that somebody died from fear from reading one of his books, he would go out in public and say, oh, gee, I'm sorry to hear that. But he would also secretly be really pleased you know, that that really worked. Um, So so it really is about eliciting what psychologists call negative emotions, or is about awakening fear and dread and terror and anxiety and disgust and those kinds of emotions in the audience. It's also about, you know, uh, positive emotions. It's also about pleasure and enjoyment and so on. Uh, But the thing about those negative emotions is that they're um, they are evolved uh, responses. They're part of the whole uh, defensive system that was developed um, over, you know, millions of years to protect organisms from danger. So fear is is a mechanism that evolved to keep us alive in a dangerous world. Um, it's not a uniquely human phenomenon. Uh, presumably other, uh, uh, species also feel fear, or they at least, um, exhibit behavior that is consistent with <laughs> fear response. Um, so fear evolved as a defensive system, something that keeps us alive in a dangerous world and or
1: exploits that system. And, and, um, earlier, you mentioned that to to be familiar with this approach, there are a lot of terms that might be confusing to a Mm. person who's not familiar. One of the terms you use, one thing I must say that I really love the book because you do deal with a lot of difficult concepts, but you beautifully and very accessibly uh, explain them, and then you have examples as well. One of the terms you use is non-random distribution of human fears. What do you mean Mm. by that? And how is this non-random distribution of human fears reflected in horror films?
0: Well hard. Right. Yeah. Right. Um and thanks for the thanks for the kind words. I appreciate that. Uh, um so so what are we afraid of? I mean if you if you go out on the street and ask random people, what are you afraid of? they will probably you know, they'll respond in fairly predictable ways. They'll be afraid of disease or death or terrorism or climate collapse. Um they might also be afraid of spiders and snakes and being in confined places. They might be afraid of, you know, very deep water. They might be afraid of heights. And uh, and so if you were to prod them even more and ask if they have a phobia, you know, a lot of people have suffered from phobia. Um, phobic objects also tend to be pretty predictable. Uh, So what I just said before, you know, with the snakes and spiders and heights and for some people, certain social situations, um, all of that seems maybe on the face of it, uh, kind of irrational. I mean, why should you be afraid of snakes if you live somewhere in the world that doesn't have um, venomous snakes? So for example, in Denmark, where I live, uh, spider phobia is the most common one. Uh, and yet, we don't have a single deadly spider, and nobody dies from spider bite in in this part of the world. So it seemed kind of irrational, but it really isn't, uh, because the most common fears may not match, you know, what we find in mortality statistics in in um, calculations of what kills people in the modern world. But they match very nicely the kinds of things that were dangerous for our evolutionary ancestors hundreds of thousands of years ago when the dark was associated with real danger because that's when the, you know, the true monsters came out When the sunset. You know, you should be vigilant. Um, spiders were dangerous to you. Snake were a real danger. Um, and, and so that's what I mean by a non-random distribution of fears. The kinds of things we are afraid of aren't just arbitrary and they aren't solely dictated by culture. Um, they tend to be things that have, Posed a real threat to our ancestors for thousands or even millions of years. Um, so, so for example, um, there is an ancient kind of arms race between uh, reptiles and mammals that goes back to the age of the dinosaurs. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so that's probably why even today we tend to, you know, when people depict evil, we tend to equip. The depictions of evil with reptilian traits. Um, I sometimes think of, you know, the old film uh, Gremlins about these cute little Mogwai furry mammalian creatures that turn evil if you feed them after midnight. Uh, and when they turn evil, they uh, significantly become reptilian with kind of slimy scales and reptile eyes and so on. So the mammals are, are good and the reptiles are evil. And that's really a reflection of a million year old, 65 million year old arms race between our ancestors and, and our natural enemies. So, so the things we fear are not random. They are uh, reflections of ancestral danger. And um, if we look at, at the landscape of, of horror stories, many of uh, uh, the monsters that kind of stalk Our horror stories are exaggerated reflections of the kinds of things that were dangerous to our ancestors. So horror is full of enormous serpents and uh, giant spiders and uh, huge monsters with uh, sharp teeth and claws and hostile, you know, males wielding sharp weapons, Um, infectious creatures like zombies that are contagious and and, uh, and really gross. So that's
1: that's the kind of thing I had in mind. Uh, just I guess quite by accident a few days ago, I came across this digitized book of I'm uh, originally from Iran. It's called the Book of Demons, which was written about hundred years ago. And there's mm-hmm. this demon who apparently licks your foot. Uh, there, it's very mm-hmm. pictorial. But it licks your foot if your feet at, at night. If your feet if you stick out your foot feet out of uh, outside the blank out of the blanket. I- I, when I was a kid, I always had that fear of my foot, you know, sticking out of the blanket. But anyway, that demon has a tail, which is a snake. Mm-hmm. It's it's what, what you say quite rings for, rings familiar with, with me, and I guess a lot of people as well, they normally associated so. with spiders. Yeah, I think so. So. Yeah, ties, yeah. yeah. And what you say about the
0: feet sticking out, that seems to be sort of universal. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. I, remember, yeah. and I, I remember also reading uh, another interview with um, Stephen King. Where he said the same thing. He said, you know, you don't want your feet to be sticking out because then the monster will get them. And and the interviewer asked him, so why are you okay why are you okay with your head sticking out? You know, why why not the feet? Um but the head is okay. And King said, Well, the monster wouldn't start with the dessert, would it? Uh, <laughs> and that kinda of, you know, that made good sense to me. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um How how what you did? Do- Despite the fact I, I when I was a teenager I used to watch a lot of horrors not anymore but if mm-hmm. I guess something goes viral in a movie everybody talks about it, I might just browse through the movie or fast forward to see what it's about but anyway oh. but and uh, I'm a big fan of classic cinema but when I'm not really in the mood and I just want to you know spend time and you know go and binge watching something I just go to mm-hmm. Netflix and start. Watching some of those you know cheap horror American films, which are really gory and bloody, and after twenty minutes, I just switch to something else. But mm. what is this fascination and attraction to horror? despite the fact that, again, psychologically speaking, there have been a lot of documented uh, the the documented negative effects on us. Mm. We know it's harmful, but we're still attracted to that,
0: yeah, so so the attraction seems paradoxical because why would you why would you, you know, Spend your valuable time and money being frightened by make-believe. Um, it's not really a paradox because of course people do it because it gives them pleasure. So the question then becomes, why would you derive pleasure from being frightened by make-believe? Um, and, and that really brings us into the territory of what I call recreational fear before. Um, so recreational fear is when people play with fear and when they derive pleasure from being frightened. And it's a very widespread phenomenon. It really begins very early in infancy when, when babies uh, find it um, amusing to be jump scared, you know, when we do peekaboo or chase play or hide and seek, or we throw babies into the air and catch them again. That's an early form of recreational fear. When the baby or the infant, um, you know, gets pleasure out of the thrill of, of apprehension of, um, you know, this, the physiological arousal and the, when they get a little older, you know, pre- engaging in pretend play with a kind of threat element, if Aaron or the care- caretaker pretends to be a monster and chasing them around the, the apartment and they, they know it's not dangerous, but they also kind of immerse themselves into this stimulation, this threat scenario. And then when kids get older, their interest in playing with fear tends to be more directed toward media, so horror movies and, and television shows and so on. And um, I think, and our research suggests, that uh, that the uh, interest in playing with fear and seeking out frightening forms of imaginative, uh, play may be adaptive, so it may be that evolution designed, and that's in in quotation marks because there is no designer here, it's a a blind natural process, but that evolutionary forces have shaped human beings to derive pleasure from playful engagement with fear because it is a learning mechanism. It is a way in which we learn about the dangers of the world, we learn about our own, um responses to to threat when we learn what it feels like to be uh stressed we know about we learn about our our limits and we make it a chance to challenge those limits so so the short answer would be that I think that our appetite for horror and other kinds of recreational fear is an adaptive mechanism it is really it's just like you know why do we derive pleasure from having sex Well, it makes? evolutionary sense. Uh, it's a, That's a kind of behavior that um, pays off genetically. Just like deriving pleasure from eating, um, it, it's good for us. And I think in the same way, playing with fear can be good for us. It's it's an important way in which we learn about ourselves and the world in its more kind of dark aspects.
1: Um, another part of your book that I really loved and was enlightening to me was uh, this overview of American Horror. Like I said, I did my PhD on uh, Gothic, but I'm focused on British Gothic, and when it comes to American Gothic, I literally know nothing. So, uh, And I know it's a big part of the book, and it would be great if we could quickly take us through that development of horror from mid-1800s to postmodern horrors of 1990s. Mm -hmm. And one thing I'm particularly interested in is to know if this development of horror was a response to sociopolitical circumstances in the United States. We know, for example, there was a time when they had, I remember there were a lot of movies in the 1960s where big ants or spiders would walk out of the farm, as mm-hmm. some, and, and and it was sometimes maybe a response to the horrors of pesticides that Americans became more aware of. So mm-hmm. was it a response to sociopolitical co- uh, elements or uh, was it underpinned by human biology or maybe both? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I think both to, to answer that first question, uh, the second question. And the first question or prompt was to kind of chart the development of American horror. Um, and one thing that struck me as interesting when I did the research for, for that particular chapter, um, was, you know, how early in, in, in the American quest for cultural independence, um, the elements of horror kind of arrive on the stage. Of course, in the uh, 19th century, um, American uh, intellectuals were preoccupied with finding their own kind of cultural identity or uh, cultural independence, um, finding their own literary voice. Um, And so we have some of the most famous um, authors include people like Edgar Allan Poe and Herman Melville and Nathaniel Hawthorne. All of whom wrote some really gruesome stuff, all of whom engaged with, you know, elements of Gothic and, and horror literature. And, um, so, so it's, it's, it's part of American literary DNA from, from the beginning, the, the monsters and the witches and the ghosts and and the hauntings. Um, and then of course the arrival of, uh, moving pictures, um, really changes things. I think it's safe to say that today uh, movies are the dominant medium of of horror. I mean, horror literature is still alive and well, and we also have horror video games and virtual reality experiences and haunted attractions, which are kind of live-action, immersive theater. Um, so, So if we look back over the last 250 years or so, what we see is really a proliferation of horror a uh, diversification uh, in terms of media and subgenres and different voices. So the landscape of horror today is more diverse and richer than it has ever been before. Um, but it begins with stories. It doesn't begin with literature. I mean, if we wanted to identify the beginnings, we'd have to go much further back, maybe 50,000 years back into the distant past when our ancestors gradually evolved the ability to construct imaginary worlds and, and share those worlds with each other through the medium of language. And so 50,000 years ago or 30,000 or however long ago it was that our ancestors developed uh, speech, um, language, probably they pretty quickly started amusing each other with scary stories about, you know, gruesome monsters later on. That uh, evolved into um, horror literature and then arrived with technological developments, movies and that video games and so on. And uh, and it's true what you say that um, horror has has changed in response to cultural context. So after the second world War and the nuclear bomb and fears over radiation, we see these horror sci-fi hybrids about enormous ants that are. Or, you know, Godzilla as a Japanese response to this fear of radioactivity. Um, so it's always, it's always possible and usually gratifying to see how horror emerges in response to cultural context. Uh, but it's always also, you know, important to, to, uh, to retain that focus on biological underpinnings. Um, so why would we even be afraid of giant reptiles or huge insects in the first place? Well, we'd have to look at you know the fear system that we talked about before and and common human fears. Um, so uh, so it is gratifying to see how, for example, slasher movies were all the rage in the 1980s. I mean that's the decade of the slasher movie, which is a particular subgenre genre of horror cinema uh, that is about Usually uh, masked males who hunt and kill teenagers in suburban environments. You know, movies like Friday the Thirteenth franchise, or Halloween, or Nightmare on Elm Street. Those kinds of movies were incredibly popular in the in the eighties. Now, for various reasons, one of them might be that uh, it was a it was a time when. Um, sexual norms were under discussion and in many of those movies, it's the sexually active teenagers who were killed first. Uh, it, it was a time when there was croakers on, um, stranger danger and discussions about to what degree it was safe at these, you know, the otherwise, um, very attractive American, um, suburban environments that are usually where the Stark killer, uh, hunts his prey. And so, 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 so that's all, that's all fine. You know, looking at cultural context and seeing how that's, how that shapes or, um, influences or a movie. But there are other mechanisms at play here, including psychological mechanisms and also as a kind of habituation, I think, uh, where You know, once people have seen enough slasher movies that follow the same kind of basic plot line, they get tired of it. They want something new. And so when the slasher wave sort of died down in the mid-1980s, it's not because the cultural context suddenly changed overnight. It's because people, you know, they'd had enough. And then then as a result of that habituation, um, filmmakers begin sort of rearranging the elements of, the subgenre. That's That's why we see the resurgence of um, slasher movies, but in a more kind of postmodern, ironic, in our savvy form with, well, you could argue that Nightmare on Elm Street uh, has some of those elements, but certainly with the arrival of Scream in the mid-1990s, uh, a slasher movie that is very aware that it is a slasher movie and that plays to an audience that is familiar with the conventions of this particular subgenre. Um, I think that's partly a result of saturation of the market and uh, habituation. You know, people have seen the traditional slasher movie dozens of times, and so you have to shake it up a little bit. So, if you really, if one wanted to understand why horror movies change over time, um, you'd have to take into account yeah, um, deep-seated psychological mechanisms socio uh, sociocultural context, and maybe also mechanisms such as habituation and the desire for novelty.
1: Uh, uh, again, I do like to emphasize uh, how accessible the book is. So the book, one section of the book deals with the theoretical uh, concepts, and you also provide a history of American Gothic, and then you go to use those concepts, apply those concepts to some well-known movies. So uh, I'd like to discuss two movies here. I'm sure a lot of listeners are also familiar with those two. One of them is uh, Rosemary's Baby. Mm. So uh, how how does this uh, movie trigger our evolved fears of betrayal and contamination?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so the movie, of course, is uh, an adaptation of the novel by Ira Levin. It's a very faithful adaptation and stays very close to 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 the book and the book became a huge sensation when it was when it was published uh it was something people talked about you know when people met for lunch or went out um they would talk about this new book and and then when the movie came out they would talk about that it really resonated with people and so the basic plot is the story is about this young couple, uh, Rosemary and Guy. Rosemary is uh, a young woman who um, dreams of having her own family. Um, her husband, Guy, is a, an aspiring actor who is very ambitious and not very successful. And um, there, he has some success, you know, doing doing commercials. And so they have some money, and they get offered an apartment in a very attractive apartment house in Manhattan um, to Bramford. And so they move in and Rosemary is very excited. It's a huge old apartment. Um, and she begins decorating and imagining where the baby, uh, should have its room. The problem is her husband doesn't want babies. He wants to focus on his career. Uh, and then they are befriended by this sort of little bit pushy elderly couple in the next apartment. Um, long story short, uh, guy suddenly gets a lot of acting success and agrees to have a baby, and Rosemary has some She becomes pregnant. Um, turns out that the pregnancy is incredibly painful, and that, in fact, the elderly couple next door are Satanists who are trying to help the Antichrist arrive on Earth, and they use Rosemary as the vessel, and they've struck a deal with her husband, Guy, to use witchcraft to give him uh acting success in exchange for borrowing his wife as a vessel for the Antichrist <laughs> it's really it's really kind of far out but, but 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 then finally rosemary gives birth to this little uh this little baby boy with horns and uh, yellow eyes and a tail and she wants to kill that satanic spawn but you know, her motherly instincts sort of prompt her to, to protect them. But, but the book is told uh, in such a way that we always see things from Rosemary's perspective. And for very long stretches of, and th- that goes for the movie as well, for very long stretches of the story, we don't know who to trust. And we don't know whether the neighbors are, you know, just confused old people or, you know, practicing Satanists. We don't know if her husband Guy... Has ill intentions or the kind of creepy old doctor. She goes to see when the, the pregnancy becomes painful. And, and so that, that very uncomfortable, um, position of empathizing with Rosemary, who doesn't know if she's in danger or she's being paranoid. That really taps into a, a, a very kind of basic human predicament, which is uncertainty. And the fact that we can never know exactly what is going on inside other people's minds. We can guess, and we can try to infer the contents of other people's minds from what they say and from their behavior and their facial expressions and so on, but at the end of the day, we're kind of stuck in our own skulls. And um, and we're stuck with a basic problem of signal detection, of, of, of having to live in, in some uncertainty about whether a cue, in the world means danger or isn't really significant. You know, if I'm in my basement alone late at night and I hear a creaking noise, does that mean that there is a monster or a chainsaw psychopath in the basement with me, or is it just an old bookcase settling? Um, I don't know. I could investigate, but I could also, you know, live in uncertainty. But I think that's something that that book and the movie really exploits this Fear of the unknown, uh, and the fear that other people have, uh, ill intent. Uh, and I think that's, that's the of why it became such a huge success because it, because it
1: so powerfully evokes that, that
0: predicament.
1: And, and, uh, there is another movie, another famous movie, Steven Spielberg's Jaws. That recreates that primal scenario of predation by monster. Uh, it would be great yeah. if we could talk about that a little as well. Right. Yeah. So
0: Jaws is interesting because it kind of become a cultural touchstone. I mean, even people who have never seen the movie will be familiar with that. The you know the two tone, the doo 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 that kind of signals the approach of the shark, and. It's the first, um, so it's from the mid 1970s as the first, uh, summer blockbuster that was released, uh, in the summer. And there's an interesting, it's interesting to see how the, the, the release of that movie coincides with a drastic drop in beach tourism in North America. So people run from the beaches into the movie theater to see this movie that everybody is talking about and they don't get go back to the beach. Um, People stop bathing, you know, in the ocean, even in swimming pools, because the movie terrifies the audience, because it so successfully depicts this fear of big to the predators. And so, so, uh, so Jaws is about a a huge white shark that um, preys on uh, people off the coast of of an island in, in New England. And Spielberg really made a masterpiece of suspense and horror, uh, because the shark is kept off screen for, for the vast majority of the film. We don't see the shark at all until like an hour into the movie. Its presence is always kind of there in the periphery and it kind of builds in the imagination of the audience until until we see it. Um, and it really, you know, it really effectively. Triggers those evolved fear responses that we talked about before. Um, because I mean, why, why would we even find the concept of a big man-eating shark frightening this, that is irrational. I mean, globally, more people are killed by falling coconuts than they are by sharks. Cows are vastly more dangerous to people than sharks, but, but cows and coconuts don't have the kinds of features that trigger our deep-seated, evolved fear system—they don't match the kinds of things that were real dangerous to our ancestors. A shark does, you know, with the dead black eyes and the mouth that is, you know, full of sharp teeth and its intent to kill people. Um, and so that's the kind of very primal fear that that Spielberg very effectively evoked in that movie. So, um, so I think that's, that it's, it, it's, one of the best, I mean, people debate whether it's even a horror movie or an adventure movie or, or some kind of hybrid. I don't really find those discussions very interesting, but I do think that the, the horror elements are, are very
1: effective. I think I watched that movie again about like eight or nine months ago. I'd seen it like six or seven times. But it's mm. a good suspense film, as you mentioned. <laughs> it is. It, yeah. still, it still kind of glues you onto the screen when you start watching it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of curious to know if we can, this framework that you set up for us about uh, to describe our fascination with horror, triggering our deep psychological fears. Can we use this framework to talk about our fascination with maybe some some people's fascination, of course, with extreme sports, which are dangerous, also big. With mm. some sort of toys, you know, in the amusement parks, um, but yeah. I don't know what they're called. Like uh, they they throw you like hundreds of meters. It's safe, yeah. but it still gives you that fear, that element yeah. of fear. Can we use that um, frame theoretical framework to to describe our fascination with such kinds of uh, staged fears? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's the same basic um, idea. I mean, it's all about threat
0: simulation. Um, that's that's a term or a concept I have borrowed from uh, research on nightmares, uh, threat simulation theory. Mm. I think horror works the same way in other kinds of recreational fear activities, including roller coasters and theme parks and extreme sports and the the childhood uh, games that we talked about before. It's all about pretending uh, to be in a dangerous situation or, or kind of cheating the body into responding to... Um, mm cues of danger i mean there is kind of a wrinkle in that certain kinds of extreme sports are in in fact dangerous um but i think it's it's really about uh, the amount of arousal so so we did some research my colleagues and i on on the relationship between fear and enjoyment and we found there is a kind of sweet spot of fear um so people when they seek out horror movies and scary books, and they go to theme parks and so on, amusement parks. Now they're looking for just the right amount of stimulation, just the right amount of fear and anxiety and so on. Um, Too much and they get overwhelmed, it's not pleasant for them. If it's not scary enough, it's boring for them. So they want just the right amount. And, And there is some individual variation in that sweet spot of fear. So for some people, they require a lot of stimulation before they reach the sweet spot and maximize their enjoyment. So for example, I need some pretty scary stuff to really, you know, get my juices going and, and feel that, okay, this is this is the kind of stimulation I'm going for. Because I've seen a lot of horror movies and read a lot of horror books and so on. Um and maybe some people require, you know, even more stimulation so that make believe isn't enough for them to to get that rush that they desire and so they, they they look to extreme sports where there is an actual element of danger. Uh, it's not something we know a lot about yet, but it's something I'm hoping to investigate more in the future with my colleagues in the recreational of lab. Um,
1: uh, before uh, we come to the conclusion of this interview, um, I'd like to ask a question about the theoretical approach, uh, which is biocultural approach or evolutionary psychology. It does give us a lot of great insights, and it's based on science, which is not easily, which cannot be easily dismissed. But to look mm-hmm. at something from from horror, for example, from an evolutionary psychology perspective, is it to completely dismiss the, let's say, cultural studies or cultural standing of such phenomenon, or the role of culture and social and society, mm-hmm. uh, because there are some hardcore evolutionary psychologists who simply believe in what the science tells them and they completely disregard sociological studies, let's say. Uh, What is your response to criticism against uh, evolutionary psychology? Yeah, I think
0: that's that's a really good question and a very important point to get into focus because I actually agree with some of those criticisms that a lot of evolutionary psychology tends toward being kind of reductive, um, there is value in, in, in causal reduction. Um, but when you reduce a phenomenon to its constituent parts, you also run the risk of losing some, you know, some of the complexity or some of the aspects that, that, that make that phenomenon interesting. So, so if you were to reduce all of, you know, horror literature through uh, imaginative depictions of threat scenarios. Sure. I think that that's part of the picture, but that's certainly not all of it. Um, so I, myself, I've mentioned Stephen King already several times today. King has a unique personality and a unique way of writing. And he's writing in response to the 1970s and 80s and 90s and, and so on. And, and his books change over time. And I'm really interested in that kind of particularity of his works. Um, and if I were to reduce his works to, to threat simulations, I'd lose a lot of richness, uh, so I think for a biocultural approach to literature or movies to have value to, you know, beyond explaining some very diff, some very basic patterns, we have to, we have to retain focus on, uh, culture, cultural context and individual authors and aesthetic qualities and so on. So we really, we can't leave the study of, of literature and movies to the psychologists. We also can't leave it to the traditional humanists who tend to, to focus only on cultural context. We really need this kind of integrative interdisciplinary perspective, I would say, and, and, and uh, reduction of any kind is always risky business. Whether you reduce to evolve psychological mechanisms or to Cultural context—you um, um, miss missing out on, on, on the whole picture.
1: Professor Mathias Clausen, thank you very much for uh, sharing your thoughts on New Books Network about your book uh, *Why Hard Seduces*, published by Oxford New uh, Oxford University Press. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.